You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, we're going to take a little break from our regular format for a bit. And I, I wanted to take this opportunity to feature a conversation we got to have with Dr. Dina Machuve of the Nelson Mandela African Institute of Science and Technology. And we got to talk with her at the Data Science Africa Conference and Workshop in Arusha, Tanzania. That was a couple of weeks ago. And while we were having this conversation, Neil, I couldn't help but think back to our last episode, which featured an interview with Catherine Heller from Duke. There were a lot of really interesting questions that the two of these things raised together. Yeah. What I love about Data Science Africa and also about Catherine's interview is the challenges of working with real data and real world applications and how that's underestimated and not given due prominence in the sort of classical machine learning arena. And both interviews touch on the amount of time this takes and the sort of infrastructural challenges and, you know, that it's not just about the modeling. So Data Science Africa, I find very inspiring for that because the amount of focus that there is on the problem and the data acquisition. Yeah, it was really fascinating. And tell me a little bit more about Data Science Africa. This was the, the third year that it's being put on? Yeah, well, actually, like a lot of conferences, there's a sort of version zero, um, but it's the third year of the conference in its current form. I don't know if it's a conference or a workshop. It's actually a sort of combination of summer school plus a two-day workshop. And it's something that evolved, well, actually going way back, it was uh, this Pascal of Network of Excellence a number of years ago. And there was an idea to go and give a summer school in Ghana. And a guy called uh, Colón de la Higuera went out to Ghana with a number of people from Pascal Network. I didn't go, although I was very curious about it, and delivered this summer school and reported back and there were some lessons learned. But a key figure in, in that was John Quinn, who had been in Africa for a number of years, I think even at that time for a couple of years. And I'd known John from NIPS. He was one of Chris Williams' PhD students, did some really interesting work. And uh, I'd known that he was spending this time in Africa. I met John actually at Schlossdag School, which is a German center for computer science research, uh, sort of retreat and one of John's students at the time, Ernest, and uh, talked about actually trying to do this again, but in a sort of lower scale way. And Data Science Africa emerged out of sort of listening to John and, and the sort of interesting things he was getting up to and wanting to sort of find out more about it. But then actually sort of trying to tailor what we do in machine learning more towards uh, what the local demands were in terms of mm. using data. And a particularly... Mm. The particular thing that John said, actually, he gave a talk at Sheffield. I, I had him invited to our research retreat. And something he said made a big impression on me that he sort of tries to follow this philosophy of solving low-tech problems with high-tech solutions. And the idea with Data Science Africa was to exploit the existing network infrastructures in Africa, mobile communications networks and mobile phones, and start trying to get machine learning involved. And, and John does this habitually, but trying to extend the influence of John across Africa. And this third edition was being hosted by Dina, which was uh, really great because the, the first edition was in Kenya, and, and that was hosted by an ex-postdoc of mine. The, the second edition, Shira Manya, and the second edition was in Uganda, hosted in Kampala, hosted by UN Global Pulse. And this third edition was an extension of the network where Dina Matuve had heard of the workshop, had traveled from Arusha in Tanzania, her university there, Nelson Mandela African Institute of Science and Technology, with a colleague to attend the workshop and was really taken with the event and super keen to see it happen in Arusha. And for me, that was a really big moment because you're trying to build something sustainable with a network of mm -hmm. people delivering useful things for their 
local problems. And Arusha was a new contact that emerged from the second edition. And yeah, she hosted a great edition down of it in Arusha this year. And it was so exciting to speak to her because, you know, as we'll hear, she, she's had such an interesting career in this space going from you know the, the sort of origins of the mobile networks to trying to exploit the data that's coming out of them today well let's take a listen to our conversation with dina and like with all of our interviews we started with the first question that we ask all of our guests how did you get where you are i was uh, educated mainly in tanzania did my undergraduate in electrical engineering uh, where i graduated in 2001 from the university of dar es salaam after that, I had an extensive five years of working experience where I worked mainly with mobile phone companies. I worked with the current Airtel Tanzania, which has network operations in East Africa. It has presence in Kenya, Uganda, in um, Ivory Coast, and Malawi, and Nigeria. So I was employed with Airtel in 2001. I worked there for a year till 2002, and I had a one-year contract to work in Nigeria, where I was based in Lagos for a year. Then I returned to Airtel Tanzania, where I worked till 2006. Then I embarked on uh, academics. I pursued my Master of Science in Electrical Engineering at Tennessee Technological University in the U.S., I returned home in 2008. I worked for the University of Dar es Salaam as assistant lecturer in the electrical engineering department. And I worked there for a year. And I had an assignment with the Minister of Communication, Science and Technology in Tanzania for three years. So I transferred to the ministry in 2009. I was in a team that was responsible for the optical fiber infrastructure network for the country. It was a big team. So when you were um, in the telecoms, were you also doing optical fiber work, or was that...? Yes, yes, yes. But uh, when I transferred to the ministry, it was mainly the administrative work to monitor the project rollout. So that was a really interesting time. It was, yeah. Massive expansion of mobile telecoms across... uh, it was it was really a great opportunity for me to see the transition because before this project the internet access in the country was really poor yeah it was only limited to major cities and the, in mobile it was unaffordable so were you involved in uh, placing the base stations the contractor was um, a chinese company mm-hmm. that was contracted by the country so as a team of engineers uh, we had to monitor every stage of the rollout in the country that is uh, according to standards. And, and did you do then the masters? Was, it, was the work sort of dying down at that point, or did you just fancy a change when you went to Tennessee? Uh, it was a big change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a big change because, you know, uh, after my undergraduate, I worked for five years, so mm. going straight to books wasn't easy. What was the masters in? It was in electroengineering. I did it by coursework. Yeah. So, but the projects were very interesting. <laughs> That's, uh, and that was still in telecoms, though? I did some computer engineering courses, web and database design yeah. courses with projects, and there was optical fiber courses as well. 
digital signal processing, a lot of maths. Yeah. <laughs> so after the, you went back to Dar es Salaam, mm -hmm. worked at the ministry, and then you chose to do a, a, a PhD. PhD. Exactly. Yeah, because the optical fiber infrastructure project took three years. And uh, by the time I left the ministry, it was like handing over the operations. So the excitement, it was only going transitioning to administrative work. Then yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. Ah, no, uh, I've tr I have to continue with more challenging tasks. That's why I opted to go back for PhD. But here. it's very cool that the yeah, things the, you do now are utterly reliant on exactly. that fast mobile network. Exactly. And actually the transition after this optical fiber project was over, the prices went down yeah. so so I mean, rapidly so for bandwidth. We were just, what did we buy? For $8 yesterday, 12 gigabytes of data. Exactly. We were all buying, you know, for $8. That's way cheaper exactly. than you get it in the US or the UK. Mm -hmm. It's affordable now for everyone. That's why everyone can now afford to be on WhatsApp 24-7. And uh, even yeah. these mobile companies have all these uh, promotional packages that if you enroll for a 12 GB package, you have it for a week. So it's quite affordable now. And I was part of that team that, that made it possible. And so what was the PhD? I did my PhD in information and communication science and engineering. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was by coursework and dissertation. And the research I worked on was on small and medium enterprises mm. in food processing sector. How do we get them digitize their record keeping? Yeah, so, cool. so you did everything. You're doing all the stuff that like, we need <laughs> to get things going. You've done the telecommunications network. Exactly. Now you're working with small business. Then you were working with small businesses. And yeah, now I'm transitioning to machine learning because and now you're moving to machine exactly learning, because yeah. I my my supervisor what really, what really motivated me. Now you've developed a mobile applications where small and medium enterprises can manage to keep their records. Now, what are you going to do with all the data? So you have to think beyond the mobile application. That I love it. Exactly. What I love about this as well mm -hmm. is um, this is what excites me about Africa, personally, mm -hmm. is you've just talked about within one lifetime of work a transition that is going from basically difficulty in making telephone calls from exactly. say Arusha to Dar es Salaam and, and, and almost hopeless to get an international call in. So within your own working life you've been intimately involved in that now we've got too much data and we have to do something uh, with all this data in order to make things more efficient. Yeah. How do you report back to the political leaders that we have all this data on SMEs and on uh, malaria because we have a, an extensive health research ongoing with extensive data. Tanzania is very strong in that Exactly. Area, like yesterday, we had this director general from the Commission of Science and Technology. Before getting this post, he used to work with the Hifakara Health Institute. So, uh -huh. so when yesterday he visited our campus, he was like, please introduce me to Swansea University, one of the sponsors for data science in yeah, Africa. Swansea, yeah, Swansea University. Mm -hmm. Here, exactly. One of the sponsors, yeah. Exactly, and they have this specialty in health informatics. Yeah. And he shared that there's a lot of data at Ifakara Health Institute that we really need a specialist to help us make yeah. sense. For Just it. for context, so I'm, and I'm more familiar with Uganda, but the setup in Tanzania is similar. I assume that you've got localized health centers. With perhaps a doctor near to communities, but they're not typically the size of a hospital and exactly. the sort of data they collect. They often don't have the facilities to test for, say, malaria or typhoid, but they exactly. would have the treatments. But the medicines can cost a reasonable amount of money. 
I heard of a case, for example, a friend of mine was living on an island in Lake Victoria and uh, a neighbor's child was ill with malaria. And malaria exhibits very similar to typhoid, so they took the child to the doctor, gave um, malaria medicine, it's very expensive, but then the child was still sick, and three days later they took back because it was actually typhoid. And these are the sort of complexities Mm -hmm. you get in the health ecosystem, right? Definitely. It's the same condition around East Africa. The conditions are quite similar, yes. But these these health centres, they actually submit data back to the ministry, Mm -hmm. which certainly I've been involved with in Uganda modelling, so you can get information about where diseases in the country and you can distribute resource to try and prevent outbreak. In fact, John Quinn was just talking about exactly. that. Exactly. Sort of <laughs> yes, morning. yes. Yeah. So John Quinn's research is very, very relevant to our side. And actually even this, if Akara, the Health Research Institute, is uh, seeking expertise in the same. So mm. say we really need these skills to do that. So that's why it really gives me a challenge and motivation to work on machine learning, develop my skills in that direction. And to me, this is one of the most inspiring things because you see how that... I mean, the physical infrastructure in Tanzania is not strong. Same with Uganda and Kenya. In places, it to drive here from Arusha, there's a partially tarmac road, partially dirt road. The dirt road is very rutted. It, it takes an amount of time to get here. So travel, physical travel in Africa is hard. We have an attendee at the conference. He flew from Democratic Republic, Republic of, of Congo, Congo mm-hmm. to Kigali, and then he traveled two days overland from Kigali around Lake Victoria to get here. Yeah. Other attendees are traveling 24 hours via bus. But if you can move information and understand where to distribute resources, this is a really big help. It has and I think, a very big impact. And so one of the things that really excites me is the infrastructure that you were involved in putting in place. The information infrastructure is enabling workarounds for the, the more difficult physical infrastructure. Very true. And we have the biggest impact on mobile money transfer. Oh, yeah. It's very helpful. Because like, I remember... In the past, we used to live in Dar es Salaam, the capital Mm. city, and our home village is eight hours' drive from Dar es Salaam. That time, even phone calls was a challenge. Mm. It it was through landline. It was a challenge. But since we had mobile phones, the communication improved. And when you had to send money to my grandmother, you have to send someone, pay the fare, until they travel for eight hours to just to deliver the money or food stuff to, for our grandparents. But since we had the mobile money transfer, you just transfer the money and they, they meet all their needs. Yes, uh, without, yeah, so it has it bring a great revolution. So, mobile money is something extremely common in Africa. Mm-hmm where you basically can just send money by text message. And, exactly. and I think it even started out informally. It used to be sending mobile phone credit. People exactly. could send mobile phone credit, and so they started using that as an exchange mechanism, and then the mobile companies cottoned onto it, and actually, uh, so extremely efficient money transfer, well ahead of the West. And, <laughs> and, and I should say the mobile phone networks here are well ahead of the UK's network. Yeah. Dina's done a great job in putting them together because we get 4G wherever we go. I mean, in I was of, there when... Airtel in Tanzania was first started in 2001. I remember that day we were there, the switch till 1 a.m. I think that's when the first phone call, mobile phone call was made. It was exciting. <laughs> it was really exciting. So we had a very big team together with Job Dance. I've visualized this revolution in mobile networks and uh, the pre- penetration rate now is at 80%. 
Yeah, yeah, so there's this statistic that people have better access to mobile phones than Definitely. toilets, which is presented as like a bad thing, and okay, sure, that's a bad thing, <laughs> but it's also an incredible thing. Exactly. I mean, it stands at 41 million mobile phone subscribers in the country, where our population is 53 million. And contextually, people are crazy about Facebook here. <laughs> and WhatsApp. And, and WhatsApp. Everyone's using state-of-the-art things. Mm -hmm. uh, but it really connects people because, like now, I have great interest in agriculture information Yes. So when I've been following up, you'll be amazed at the WhatsApp group of these people interested in these agricultural practices. There's an agribusiness WhatsApp group, which has about 200 members from East Africa. I've started uh, working towards chickens. You'll be amazed even at the chicken WhatsApp group, chicken feeders for feeds, even for sailing. And so it's an, a vast amount of data what you one can collect for text mining and solving other future problems for these farmers. It's yes. amazing. Just to give a bit of context, so we're, we're actually here in Arusha in Tanzania, is in North Tanzania. It's a sort of rural area. It's near to Mount Kilimanjaro. It's, it's quite a touristy town. But the main around is agriculture, as in many places exactly. in Africa. There'll be a lot of smallholding farms, but also larger farms. People own chicken, you call them chicken farms. And uh, one of the things we were doing, uh, I guess, yesterday was um, we had some people from Armin working with us on Internet of Things and devices in that way. And Dina is the general chair of the conference, so she's set everything up here, and she's organized on Saturday there's going to be a field trip exactly. to a local chicken farm. So perhaps tell us a little bit about what you do agriculturally with data and with all these now, because the other revolution, of course, is in sensors. So it's not just the communications, it's the ability to get cheap sensors, these things we were playing with yesterday were $20, yeah. and deploy them in the field, literally in the field in these cases. So perhaps tell us a little about your work with that. Yes, actually uh, the main idea of the upcoming field work within the data science in Africa workshop is that we have planned two field trips, one to a cattle farm and another one to a chicken farm. For other chicken farm, we are going to monitor the temperature for chicks because Arusha is a highland and currently is winter time, so variations in temperatures really affect the chicks and leading to their deaths. But if we are able to monitor the temperature, read the temperature um, automatically, it will really enable the, the particular farmer to regulate temperature to the required temperature of 26. It has to remain at 26, but currently it falls all the way to 16. So with IoT sensors, one will be able to receive data on the current temperature at the chicken farm and be able to regulate it to the required 26. Because the farm, what they currently do, they put warmers which are charcoal stoves. You don't know the, what the temperature <laughs> that is emitted there, but at times they really realize deaths. This particular farm keeps about 7,000 chicks at once. So temperature is quite critical, temperature regulation, especially for the first two weeks where the chicks are. After two weeks, they normally adapt to the normal temperature. For the cattle farm, we'll put sensors to monitor the cattle activities, and the data will be able to give us an overview of what the conditions the cattle are in, whether they're on heat or whether they've just ended the heat season, because cattle rearing is very expensive for smallholder farmers, and milk is very valuable this side. So to be able to get good information on the cattle's condition 
it really enables the farmer to be prepared better in terms of calling for support in, in case they see this change within the cow, whether it's approaching heat, because they're, they're being encouraged to use artificial insemination to make sure they conceive with better nutritional needs and better quality semens. So detection of when that period starts is very critical and doing it manually they normally miss the time and once you miss that you have to wait for another month which is quite a challenge for farmers so we really see this IOT session and the gadgets the sensors will really add value to these farmers. I mean, just a little bit of additional context. In East Africa, people are pretty cattle crazy. They, they love cows. I mean, yeah, a lot. And, and there's a lot of regionality about it. Like the Ugandans love cows with enormous horns and <laughs> Kenyans don't like that. I don't know what... Kenyans, <laughs> Kenyans claim they have the best cows. Where does Tanzania fit in? Tanzania, the, the tribes which keep cattle, like here in Arusha, we have the Maasai. Yeah. They don't even farm. They yeah. keep cattle. Cattle is their life. They use the milk and uh, even the fat, that's the, what they use in their bodies. Cattle is their life. And in the northern region of Mwanza, they also keep a lot of cattle. It's uh, very valuable even for dowry. And I think something you see in Africa which really inspires me is the direct connection between these issues and people's livelihoods and I think how you improve people's livelihood. And it's not always about money. It's often about time. And the examples you mentioned earlier, the mobile money, which I think is an amazing one, you're saving eight hours of time in terms of getting money back home. And I sometimes think that that's one of the best ways to sort of almost measure how things improve for individual people. That They gain more time to do more things. That might be that they do other something else, but also security, because if you're dependent on cattle for your livelihood and something goes wrong with your cow, it actually has a direct effect on your life. Yeah, it does. It, it really does. Last year, we had a very bad drought. There was no enough feed for cattle. A lot of people sold their cattle. But most farmers in Tanzania do mixed farming. They keep livestock and also they also do crop farming. So if livestock doesn't go well, they rely on crop farming. So it's only extreme for the Maasai who mainly just keep cattle, but there are a lot of initiatives through projects to educate them also onto farming. They're taking it up, although slowly, so like the Maasai who during such critical drought season are the ones who receive relief funds. But uh, most smallholder farmers do both, livestock keeping and crop farming. So they do survive, although the livestock farming is the one which has more income compared to crop farming. Because the Maasai are nomadic, so they're just taking their cattle wherever they can find feed. So they're particularly vulnerable to these drought periods. Definitely. And one of the things I think you also see is you, you see individuals herding cattle by the side of the road and they're feeding by the side of the road. So this yeah. is what these nomadic people do with their cattle. But, but as soon as that's vulnerable, they don't have the crops to fall exactly. back Exactly. Very true. And I guess as more people farm, there's less land for nomadic cattle. So. Exactly. Exactly. So normally there are districts where there are normally chaos between farmers and these nomadic Maasai pastoralists but it's normally now under control by the government they've taken a lot of donor funded projects to help them settle 
to stop the nomadic kind of life. But there is improvement because I know in Monduli district here in Arusha, there's like a secondary school dedicated only for Maasai girls. Only Maasai girls get are admitted to that school and it's really good, fully supported, free of charge. And we see the enrollment has really improved. I know one Maasai girl who was chased away from home because of education. So wanted to get educated. Exactly. And the family because didn't agree. Didn't agree. So even on, during school breaks, she doesn't go home because yeah. if she shows up at home, she'll just be given a hand for marriage. But she is really pushed ahead and she, she graduated with a bachelor's in education. And she has a job as a teacher here in Arusha, and she's currently pursuing her master's. And she now goes back home respected, so we really see there is a positive change. I want to come back to education, because I think education is key to, obviously, what we're trying to do. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and in that John Quinn was the first person to point this out to me, that, and I'm really inspired by it, and I think it, it's behind Data Science Africa, we're not talking about low-tech solutions for these fairly low-tech problems. We're talking about high-tech solutions. And I think that's a really exciting idea. But you don't solve you know, these development problems with a low-tech solution. You, you solve them with the very best of technology. And I kind of think that that's what's driving the school here, and that's why we get such popularity among students. But it also means that the things we're deploying are at the cutting edge. And they're easier to deploy here than they are in the UK or the US, where there is systems in place already. Mm-hmm. So people want these solutions because they make a big difference and there's no sort of alternative. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we hear such interesting applications. But perhaps you want to talk a little bit about... So we're here in Arusha with the Nelson Mandela African Institute of Science and Technology, where Dean has organized the conference. And tell us a bit about your current role and what the... Because it's only been here five years. It's a new university, that's right? It is, yes, yes, yeah. When we brought this Data Science in Africa proposal to our vice chancellor last year when I returned from the 2016 in Kampala, he really took it positively and said it would really add value to the goals of our university because our motto is academia for society and industry, that as researchers have solutions that have direct impact to the society and also the industry. So it's a government institution, and the main focus is to do, to do scientific research. And we have the School of Life Sciences, materials and uh, water resources, and also we have a School of Computation and Communication Science and Engineering, where it belongs. So having Data Science Africa here has really brought motivated researchers in the area to further develop their skills. And this year we were really grateful to have all these key researchers in the area all meeting at one place. And their response has been really good. I remember we have even colleagues, Tanzanians, from University of Dodoma, from University of Dar es Salaam, because they went through the website of data science in Africa and saw all the key people coming from Amazon. I mean, I was really impressed even by Neil now in Amazon. When I met him last year, I was still at Sheffield. So meeting them face to face, it's really motivating us in a different way. And even Ralph from Amazon Berlin, 
Development Center in Berlin, and also Facebook, Mustafa. I mean, it's like you're meeting your heroes in the areas. Even I gave that profile to a vice chancellor who will officiate their workshop tomorrow. He was really excited. So it really adds value to us to continue developing in the area. It's funny you say that because to me it's the other way around. I find it extremely motivating to hear these applications where you can make a real difference very rapidly just by some education. I mean we were saying that the importance of education. It's one of the challenges. I mean, well, a couple of comments about that. So you said the challenge for the, this Maasai girl, but our gender balance at this conference is way better than a gender balance would be in a sort of typical conference in UK or US. So that's a sort of very positive thing. But there are still challenges with bringing people through both a sort of master's level and PhD level to get them up to the level where they can start working on these things. Is that something you see being addressed? So there's the sort of one thing, the basic education that gets people to enable jobs to teach. And then it's cyclic, isn't it? Do you see that that's something that's improving? Yes, yes, because our university here, Nelson Mandela, is only a postgraduate university doing master's and PhDs. Now, the capacity is not as to, to a high level compared to our the universities abroad. But through this summer school, it really adds value, especially for my students. I teach a course in mobile software development, and another colleague of mine, Dr. Yao, teaches machine learning. But through this workshop, we got machine learning being taught for the first time. So this semester, the course will start on Friday, and I'll be his teaching assistant in the course. So he said, we have now all the materials from the summer school, and I mean, made it compulsory that students in that class attend the full five-day session. And I also coordinate the graduate seminars in our school. But through this data science in Africa, we see that the quality will really improve. We won't deal with only basic materials, but we're really pushing students to have their research work focus on data science. Because yeah. even in Tanzania now, we have from this year, from January, the Open Data Initiative having open data sets. So we are really pushing our students to have their research topics to be based on the data that is openly available. But what skills do they use to get the work done? So we said you have to attend the data science uh, summer school to have an idea of what you do with the data. I mean, another thing you said earlier, which I think it is, it is nice that sort of people come in and want to share from abroad, but the most inspiring thing I find is the people that are actually achieving things on the ground, people like Ernest and Martin, who demonstrate that it's possible. I think that one problem with people coming in and saying, oh, look, I do machine learning and I'm in Berlin or I'm in Cambridge, you can't really relate to that. I mean, you can relate to it, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't feel like, the, oh, we can also do this. But when the people come in from UN Global Pulse in Kampala and they're actually doing it, they're a couple of few years ahead of Arusha, I would say, but they're not out of reach. I mean, you sort of know that you can do it. You know, exactly, very true. Yeah, actually, the AI group in Kampala, Makerere, has really motivated us to do that. And actually, we have a newly installed high-performance computer, which was a grant from the government of India. It's on the final stages of being final. We just need a backup power generator, and then it will be ready to go. So that's why we're exchanging views with John and Ernest as how they 
started the AI lab and how they approached the problem in order to, to, to solve real problems. And it's true, they're quite approachable, and we really see that we really have to have a close collaboration with them in order for us to take off. So just contextually, so Kampala is a, it's about a 24-hour bus ride, right? Exactly. So that team came down on public transport, I think, a number of them uh, did together. There's all these sort of adventures for how people <laughs> exactly. get here. But it feels very important that at the moment where we have the workshop, that the other location we go to is Nyeri. And again, that's within a 24-hour bus ride. Near, from Arusha, it's, uh, it will be like, uh, yeah, a, a 10 hours. A 10 hours, okay, yeah. so even closer. So you, you get this ability to community build which is something we were talking about the other week on Talking Machines, the importance of machine learning, new method generation, um, the community and being inspired by what others are doing and realizing that you can also achieve those things. I, I think that's really critical. Very, very much so. And we have one PhD student, Anthony. He's based at the University of Dodoma by pursuing his uh, PhD here at NMIS currently. He has started a Python TZ group, so we've had serious discussions with him that we really have to take Python and machine learning to the next level. He's, he's, he's up there, so we really see that it's coming up, and we're very grateful of our colleagues at Nyeri and Kerer who are very easily approachable and share the ideas. I remember in December I had even communicated with Martin on certain issues. He exchanged materials on GIS. Yeah. How that can oh, he's be got such good stuff on Ex GIS. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really helping. It will, I'm sure next year, in the next DSA, will definitely, as uh, Nelson Mandela, will have different reports on machine learning. And, yeah. and that's something you mentioned, GIS. And actually, um, John was just doing the session on spatial data analysis. Here's something for me that comes through very strongly, the importance of spatial data in data science in Africa. And this is, to me, why it's so important to understand the application area, because there's less attention paid to that in, say, machine learning as a whole. But it seems critical partially because with this new data, you know, it's not being collected necessarily by a well-controlled study. You have to do an amount of modeling to try and interpret it. So if you're pulling in this HMS data by malaria, there's issues with missing data in different places. There's issues with data entry errors. Spatial data correction just seems everywhere. Very true, very true, very true. One thing I'd like to ask is, you, you've actually been so busy pulling the workshop together over the last few months, you've probably not had time to think about it, but, but where do you see your research going at the moment? I know you're doing the agricultural stuff. What things are you keen to tackle? I see myself going towards bioinformatics, and I've currently collected samples of chickens. It's a rare breed of chickens here in Tanzania, and... Uh, the next stage, uh, collaborate with life sciences uh, specialists so that we can take samples for, for DNA sequencing. So I'm really, really interested in that. And is this for understanding the breeds and their genetic background and what makes them tolerant to certain environmental circumstances? Exactly, and also their breeding. Because this particular kind of chicken, a seal chicken, originally from India, it, even getting the samples was a challenge. In Tanzania, I could only obtain the samples from Dar es Salaam and Zanzibar. In Kenya, they're available in Lamu, and they're extremely expensive. So we're, we're putting a question of what makes them very expensive. We've been trying to communicate with the farmers that uh, a seal chicken, a chick that is only four weeks, costs up to 100 
thousand Tanzania shillings. That's about fifty dollars. Uh, exactly. Wow. While a normal spring chicken goes for a dollar and a half, but two, so two dollars. Are they egg producers, or are they uh, for show? Or? When we ask the farmers, they say it's mainly for show, but and they re fight a lot. Their the, their outlook is uh, unique, and uh, in Uganda. You just can't get them. So it's quite an interesting species that we want to explore more. So you'll sequence them. Is there a sequencing center locally? In uh, Kenya, yeah, at yeah. the Ilri, Ilri Labs. And what's Ilri? That's the... International Livestock Research Institute. Okay. Yes, we have a working collaboration with Life Sciences uh, School, so oh, we hope to sequence them there next month. And they say the data should be ready by December. And then mm. that's where I really, I need the machine learning skills and that's the direction I really see myself going. And my mentor is Professor Gaba, who has done genomics and he's a genetist. Oh, is that who I met last night? Exactly. And he'll give a keynote tomorrow on giraffe genome sequencing. Giraffe genome sequencing. Exactly. Oh, exactly. I'm looking forward to that. Exactly. So he has uh, really exciting traits to share about the giraffe genome uh, sequencing results. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm really looking forward yeah, to that. Yeah. So he said, okay, I've done the giraffe. Why don't you, why don't we do this chicken variety? So I was shocked at the way it was difficult to find the samples. Oh, I just love the way that the Cutting-edge research ideas are just within reach. I mean, there's a number of domains where that's not true. Like, if, I mean, if Tanzania wanted to build a nuclear reactor, okay, there would be political things going on. Even without the political things, you know, the technology to start doing that, to pull that together, just impossible. But with the, all this good work you did laying down these mobile networks and, you know, improvements in gene sequencing technology, so this isn't a full de novo sequence, so I presume you don't cheaper to do, it'd be about $1,000 or something like that. Cutting-edge research is within reach. You can access the software. You can access the methods. Very true. And that really, the, the skills that we have gained from the DSA will really add value. And uh, our colleagues in um, Macquarie and Global Paths also have a lot to share in that, too. What I think excites me about it is it should just be natural that this expands and that more people get involved and get inspired in the same way, and you get more of, of this happening, I think. Exactly. I remember, like, yesterday and day before, some of my students and even colleagues were saying, where will be the next one? We really have to go. So I really see... The motivation is always said, by Friday we'll let you know where the next one will be. So I really see it gaining more popularity. And uh, even now, one lady from Dar es Salaam, she called me twice. Please, I'm on the program to present my work, and I really need to get feedback on the way forward. So we really see it improving in quality and numbers. This is a graduate institute, which in some ways I'm sure is very good because you, you get a lot more time for research. But for a lot of African academics, because of these challenges, there's opportunities, but there's a need to educate the next generation. That's a desperate need, and there's a shortage of people for doing that. And administration is sometimes difficult, and funding can be variable. How do you face all those challenges? I mean, and find time to doing the research when actually just pushing through and, and getting the regular stuff done yeah, is yeah. hard work. Exactly. Balancing that is a challenge, especially like in our school, we are really understaffed, especially this time around where the new government we had uh, is quite a challenge because the University of Dar es Salaam is the biggest, so even getting them to move to this university has been a challenge. Especially, I think the ICT domain, 
the staff size has never been stable in Tanzania and it's basically because most people get jobs after undergraduate and the few that remain uh, or get interested in studying do MBA. Very few of my classmates have continued their path in electrical engineer. Majority have done MBA. So most are in the industry. So it's quite a challenge. The way we are currently managing for teaching, we use part-time staff from other universities come to our institute to assist with teaching. But actually this year, the load has been very big. But we just set aside priorities with time. It's quite a challenge. And what about but access to material? Do you make use of MOOCs and these sort of things? It's online mainly. We use the online resources, which are mainly Google Scholar. We get a lot of materials. The Neil's website, we ha you have access to the whole course with materials, and it's really, really useful. That's what really helps us. One thing that I think is really good in this area as well is that the papers aren't behind paywalls, typically. I remember that with a colleague based in Africa who became a visiting professor at Sheffield. One of the main advantages was suddenly being able to access that the university paid for with the library, which I, most African universities I don't think have access to. It's true. That's because the, even the fees to pay are quite high. So at times currently know who is currently in U.S., who is currently in U.K. So you just send them the list and they download and send to you, but that's not quite sustainable because when they finish... And it's very disruptive. I mean, most researchers, they want to read a paper, they click on it, they read exactly. it. This is like the old days when we had to... We used to send library requests. Can you please send me or a preprint request? Can you, you know, it just take a week. Yeah, yeah. But still, I really see this university, Nelson Mandela, a bit better than University of Dar es Salaam. The teaching load at the University oh, yeah. of Dar es Salaam is, is enormous. So even when you try to call them for collaboration on a proposal call, it's almost impossible. So that's why our colleagues at uh, Sokoine University of Agriculture, there they do a lot of research besides their teaching load in undergraduate, but they have a lot of research projects mm -hmm. that they're pursuing. I would say uh, Sokoine University of Agriculture is doing more research, but it's mainly life sciences. And uh, we have even most of their staff here mm -hmm. who transferred to Nelson Mandela. But we have uh, this modality of visiting researchers and uh, adjunct professors who at times offer sessions online to our students, but they mainly help with supervision. You mentioned Dar es Salaam, and I presume that's the major sort of one, the most prestigious universities in Tanzania. And I think you hinted at it, this, this aspect that the major universities also are somewhat more constrained by a few things. I think the thing you mentioned, the teaching loads become very high. They're also very long established, so there's sometimes an amount of, as in any academic institution, I can certainly attest to that, conservatism in launching of new courses or doing new directions, because particularly when people are loaded, it's no different from like the UK, there's an administration that's at the centre and they basically, they think the university is really about the administration. It can be very hard in the major institutions, even though that's ostensibly where, you know, most of the activities going on. Yeah, but actually in the five years at Nelson Mandela, we've been able to demonstrate the research grants that we have. Currently, we have the newly established uh, two centers of excellence funded by the World Bank for water. 
resources engineering and another one for life sciences that it will focus on food and nutrition. But So we're currently reviewing our curriculum to cut across all the schools and do meaningful research. Mm. Yeah, so that's why I see the direction that I'm heading on bioinformatics will have application within the life sciences because I was involved in a short-term project on smallholder dairy farmers. So they had a lot of data and we had to do analysis. We ended up with descriptive statistics. We used SAS then. So, so that really motivated me to go further onto that direction and build my capacity towards that. And uh, even the life sciences academicians are like, we have a lot of data. We just can't do those visualizations. How do you analyze and get the stuff done? So they say, please build your capacity in that. Uh, we'll definitely be able to apply grants together and get the work done. And I think you mentioning SAS, I mean, it's quite an expensive license, isn't it? It. Yeah, it um, was funded by the Gates Foundation. Uh, the Gates Foundation does fantastic yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think they're closing up the project in September. But again, we told them the way forward is Python. And they said I was only involved in the, in the data analysis, but I, I gave them all those um, alternatives. And they said, yeah, there's a lot more to be done and the data will be freely available. So please apply the Python develop more tools, if we could have the visualization improved, it would definitely be considered for even for applying for other grants. And I think that's, um, so the open source software, the use of Python, and we make a lot of use of the Jupyter Notebook. And that's been true, like, from the really early days of uh, doing data science in Africa. And I, fi- I think the students find that super helpful. I think biologists love it as well. These tools are just so super important. And, I mean, John was using it today for visualizing spatial data analysis, uh, sort of showing a reanalysis. He was detecting the number of Johns across Uganda. So I, I don't think it was a sort of example application. But the way that you can just interact with data like that and, and start getting people to have a sense of what's going on, I think it's so powerful. Visualization, that's the other thing I've learned in Africa. We don't pay enough attention in, in the machine learning community, or maybe we shouldn't be doing it in the machine learning community, but it's this thing I've really learned about how vital visualization is for communicating with the ministry or your collaborators I mean, the data goes from being something which is, oh, here's some, I don't know, to, oh, now now I can see this. Mm, very true, very true, especially when you go to ministries to present your reports, the visualization that they understand that really appreciate to make sense in order to, for them to, to make uh, decisions. Yeah. That's great. So really, but I really see Python as the future because I'm also teaching a course on database management systems. And uh, I told them we'll have to use notebooks. And so I introduced my students to notebooks uh, two weeks ago. In the That's Jupyter notebook, right? yeah. yeah, the Jupyter notebook. So they really appreciated. They said you have to have it installed, otherwise you'll be left behind in the DSA. I had this call from uh, Mike before I flew out. It said, download Anaconda in these four versions. The internet's too slow to get it. He didn't have his SIM card at the mm. time. It would have been a SIM card. It's fine, but it's like half a gig each. So exactly. <laughs> flying in with every different version of Anaconda to make sure we can give all the students the notebook. Exactly. Um, so, so it's a very useful tool. Very useful. Yeah. It's been so nice to have you mm-hmm. on Talking Machines uh, sharing your insights on the challenges ahead and, and the past. Thanks so much, Dina. It's, uh, appreciate. Thank you for the opportunity, Neil.
Dr. Dina Machuve of the Nelson Mandela African Institute of Science and Technology. It is so fascinating to hear this conversation with her. And I don't know, Neil, this might sound naive, but it really makes me think about the way that context really directs and focuses the questions that you might ask with your research, and it might silo you from others, which makes me then wonder, what might we be missing out on by collaborating just across disciplines and not as much across geographies? That is extremely perceptive. I mean, I was actually quite emotional at the end of that interview, just from hearing the influence we'd had on Dino by just sort of showing up and understanding her problem sets or trying to understand her problem sets a bit better. But the real point is those workshops have massively affected my own thinking about how to approach problems as well. And it's a little bit hard to know the right way to work with, a, with any new group. But what I really like is the fact that I learned so much about working with Dina and, and others there. And that influences the, the work I do in the UK, in the US and, and wherever else. I think you're totally right. So diversity of approach, diversity of problem set, and in particular, this end-to-end nature of the problems that I keep on referring back to. Super important in making you understand where the real issues are, not the issues that, you know, there's fashions in a community, everyone focuses on one thing for a moment and then something else for the next year. It's part of what in machine learning we call the explore-exploit trade-off. Sometimes you're exploring, looking for new areas, and other times, yeah, sure, you're, you're, you're playing the same fiddle. But, you know, that tune can get wearisome sometimes. Well, that's it for us on Talking Machines for this episode. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next time. <laughs>